Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM. Streamed live over the internet on nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm Matt Robeson. We've got a great show today. There's so much going on in the state, in the region, and in the country right now. And we're going to try and cover it all. So we want to really jump right in, in this first segment. And we're going to start by taking a closer look at what's going on in the region, in New England. And to do that, uh, we have a really outstanding guest. We're about two weeks out from exciting primaries in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. There's just a ton of politics happening in the region. There's almost no one um, in the region who knows the politics, who knows what's going on better than James Pindell. He's a political reporter for the Boston Globe. His analysis has been described by the newspaper Politico as must read, and it truly is. He's a veteran publisher of the New Hampshire Political Report, of Politicker. He was the political director for WMUR-TV, and he's also written for Campaigns and Elections Magazine and been featured on WBUR in the region and CNN nationally. James, welcome to Off the Record. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on, and uh, we are going to uh, rope you back in but we know you've got uh, only a short time available with us before you go back to covering all the things going on uh, in the region today. So let's just jump right into it. Um, President Trump is visiting New Hampshire right after the convention. That seems to suggest that the Trump campaign thinks that New Hampshire is really in play. So when you look across the political landscape of the state, the polling, uh, everything that you're plugged into, how competitive is it really looking? What are you seeing about how uh, the presidential race is shaping up in the state? Well, you know, two things seem to be true uh, for Trump is that one, um, you know, look, this seemed to bother him that he barely lost New Hampshire. It was the closest state he lost around the country. Uh, they have made, remained laser focused on trying to win the state. Um, and they, in fact, they, they floated the idea that they thought they could win it. Um, even last year, they've been so focused on it. But it still remains a reach state for him. Uh, the polling is pretty clear that he is behind, you know, anywhere between six to even almost ten points uh, in New Hampshire. That's pretty hard. Um, if you, if Donald Trump is reelected, it has nothing to do with whether or not he wins New Hampshire, and that is kind of a weird. A uh, statement to say because New Hampshire has been in such a, the thick of it since the 2000 election. Um, every year it's a swing state. Every year it's um, pretty much where the campaigns end their, uh, literally end their campaign is on election eve is in New Hampshire, and that is not the case now. We have big six states that we talk about. Uh, those are much larger states than New Hampshire, uh, but I do think it does make sense though why he comes here. Uh, it's it's one of those first reach states. One of the first states. What I mean is he's. Say he'd like to flip, but it's kind of a little bit out of reach. Um, it's there'd be uh, uh, New Mexico's one state for him the same way, as well as Minnesota. But Minnesota and New Hampshire have been the two states he's been most focused on trying to flip first before he gets to other states. Though, if you look at the landscape, uh, those are the two things that are true. But the third point, of course, if you look at the landscape, which I know you both do very well. Uh, he's got to first defend before he can start trying to worry about flipping. And right now, uh, if he's on, he's defensive pretty much in every single swing state at this point, uh, he's losing. Uh, though the gap has been getting smaller in recent weeks, he is still losing to a degree where, I mean, Joe Biden's on, on track to win 330 electoral votes. I'd rather be Biden right now than Trump, but he, Trump is having a pretty good week and a half or so. So, James, it's Paul Hodes. I'm uh, really glad to have you on the show. 
Um, you and I have uh, have gone back and forth on all kinds of things for a long, long time. You covered a, a lot of my political activity over the time. And of course, you've got your ear very close to the ground in terms of what's going on in the region. So there is a true barn burner of a primary in Massachusetts between Ed Markey and Mr. Kennedy. Uh, there's been some polling recently that says Markey is maybe out in the lead. Um, Markey has been very active uh, in seeking contributions. Uh, he's out there saying that the big money PACs are trying to buy the seat for uh, Kennedy. What, what's the sense on the ground there? What, what, what is this race about? Why did Kennedy do this? And uh, how's it shaping up? I mean, I'm glad you asked the question, Paul. What's this race about? I mean, this is Seinfeld it is ending up as being a race about absolutely nothing. It has no dynamic. It has no point. Um, and what I mean by that is, and I mean that on both ends. You can say, why is Kennedy running? Well, Kennedy is running because he wants to be in the Senate and polling showed that he would win. <laughs> um, so you could say- um, that's, always, that's always a great reason for somebody to well, jump into a big race. Polling say, shows I can win. You, you know what? You can say that. Um, on the other hand, I can flip it around and say, how in the hell, Ed Markey, you've been in every office forever. Why are you so vulnerable? The fact that some, you know, upstart, I know he's a Kennedy, but how are you? He, Kennedy wasn't going to challenge Elizabeth Warren. Kennedy wasn't going to challenge John Kerry if he stuck around. How, why are you so vulnerable that someone could walk in and in the early polling lose uh, a race by 14 points? So it's the early polling showed. And now it's, um, how are we at this point where, Markey uh, clearly has the momentum. Uh, there's no question about that. Even when you talk to Team Kennedy, that they, they acknowledge that. But why is he um, now winning? Uh, and further, the really confusing thing I think I'm struck with, the reason why I came with my Seinfeld comment, is this, this is ending in a really weird way. I mean, the election's on Tuesday. Um, it's, we're debating whether or not uh, you know, the Markey campaign has been too vicious about the Kennedy legacy. I mean, is that, I mean, I don't know why voters care about that at all. I'm not sure, Kennedy clearly did not believe that he would be ending the campaign discussing the Kennedy name. He thought he could walk in, polling was pretty clear, Markey was very vulnerable, Markey was supposed to pack his bags, realize he was, it's over, and drop out of the race. Uh, that clearly did not happen. Markey's run a very tactically good campaign. I don't think anyone disagrees about that. But the also confusing thing, again, with Markey is, why are we accepting the premise that this is race is about Kennedy? Uh, and he sort of is. Um, he's leaning in on it on his ads. He's being snarky about it, which is fine. Um, but is this race about something else? Uh, he wants to talk about his, you know, the environment or whatever else. I mean, that's fine. There just has not been a lot of differentiation for voters to decide this is what I'm actually voting about. And on top of all of it, is something you're going to experience in your race also for state senate and, and we're experiencing around the, the region is who the hell is voting um i'm a pretty engaged guy i live in boston i applied for my mail ballot uh, over three about three and a half weeks ago i don't have it um who who's gonna who's actually voting um uh, you know at this point is like do i actually show up in person and risk getting COVID or not um i don't know what i'm gonna do and I think for a lot of folks, there's been a lot of breakdown uh, on the process. It's not anything snarky. It's not anything mail fraud or, I mean, any voter fraud. It's just the process is not set up right now. So 
who actually has the best ground game? What does that actually mean? <laughs> actually, votes in this thing is very confusing. I, uh, Marky clearly has the momentum. I have no idea what's going to happen on Tuesday. You know, let me just follow well, up for a moment. Go ahead, Paul, I, please. Yeah, I, you know, I served with Ed Markey in the House, and uh, we were we we were good friends. He was clo- uh, we were close. Um, he and I had had an inside joke that he he picked up on something I said. Uh, I think at uh, some hearing or some some question. Every time we saw each other, he'd look at me and say, "Congressman Hodes, it's the gravamen of the issue." And um, so we, we even said that to each other in the spin room after the debate where he was working the spin room for Elizabeth Warren. He saw me and said, Congressman Hodes, it's a gravamen of the issue, and then went back to his business. So I, I have a soft spot for Ed Markey. Sure. And, and Kennedy was a, you know, has been a really, has been a good congressman. Ed Markey, I think, is tougher than people may have given him credit for. He is, mm-hmm. uh, in the end, he is a Boston street fighter. And uh, you can't underestimate him. And I'm wondering if Kennedy said, okay, it's uh, time for young people. The time for the old white guys is over. And I'm the uh, young, fair-haired, red-headed, red-headed boy. And I'm going to bring youth and vigor to the race. And my youth and vigor are going to carry, carry the day here. Um, and that may have gotten him into some trouble in underestimating, uh, in underestimating Markey. But so that's a long windup to ask, why did Pelosi, why did Pelosi jump in for Kennedy? Why did she I mean, endorse said, I mean, Kennedy? You're, you're a former member of Congress. I mean, she's protecting your zone in the same way Schumer endorsed Markey. I mean, I think to go back on your earlier point, I mean, the, the Globe's editorial page in particular has been really rough on Kennedy for the points that you've made. And they have been from the beginning. Why are you running? What's the point of this? I've applauded it. I totally get it as a logical play why he ran. Markey, he wants to run. He wants to be in the Senate someday. He wants to run for president. And if you look at the landscape, um, if you go into the future, uh, this is not a good situation for Joe Kennedy. Uh, What's he going to do? He's going to wait and see if Warren leaves the seat. I don't know when that's going to be. I mean, it could be with Joe Biden's administration. Maybe not. Who is he going to run against? You got to pick your opponent. In these days in Massachusetts politics, uh, you're going to have a primary. That was not always the case, but it's certainly going to be the case in the future. You will have a primary for an open seat. So who are you going to be primary against? Would you rather run against a guy who's been in office for 40 years, who's basically has no name ID, who's totally an unknown figure that you can try to create and push out, or are you going to run against Ayanna Presley, you know, the first uh, African-American woman to serve in Congress, who's quite a good speaker, a fundraiser, everything else. You're going to run against Maura Healy, the attorney general, um, obviously raised in New Hampshire, uh, uh, as who, who's, who's a lesbian. I mean, how are you going to pull this off against very credible candidates in the future? I would much rather take my chance with Ed Markey, who famously in Massachusetts lore, you know, Rant was running for the U.S. Senate in 1984 until a lieutenant governor called John Kerry decided to run. And Ed Markey famously just dropped out of the race because he thought he couldn't win. So some people wondered, you know, would Ed Markey just call it quits and say it was a good, it was a good life, good career. But for that very reason, uh, he had nothing to lose. He stuck in the race and clearly he's benefiting and glad he did that. 
I, you know, I'm so glad you went over that territory because, you know, the, the dynamic here of kind of taking your shot, especially against an older Politico um, in Massachusetts, it's also playing out in another really hot primary. And you brought up Ayanna Presley. Um, well, she overtook a, a well-loved figure in another older white guy uh, in Massachusetts, Mike Capuano, uh, in the last cycle. And now you've got Richie Neal, a very powerful chairman in the House, who's got a very feisty primary underway against Alex Morse. Now, unless you're deep in the weeds of Massachusetts politics, you know, or you really follow these things nationally, maybe our listeners haven't been uh, following this one. But in, the, in just the, the two minutes or so that we have left, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a little flavor of this one, because this has been a winding primary, a lot of interesting stuff going on. What's your sense of that one? What do you read into that? Yeah, I mean, we don't have, probably don't have enough time to get into all the sexual, uh, 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 I guess, misconduct allegations that were proven to be false. And whether he's, he's, he's got a, it's a wild tale. You could probably Google it. And if you're really interested in it, it's kind Google of crazy. It. But, totally. But if it basically uh, it went from a, Okay, you know, here's this progressive upstart who probably is not going to win against Neil to a suddenly a really interesting contest because of particularly what's happened in the last two or three weeks. Um, you still have to give the edge to Neil. Uh, that's I know you know that area better than I do, but I've been we've been covering a lot. Um, it, but it's a very fascinating contest. And then outside of that, you know, Massachusetts, there's a, of course a, an open seat for Kennedy's seat uh, in the western uh, in the Metro West outside of Boston which is a crazy, crazy race. The Globe endorsed the person and sort of backed off on it. There's a, it's basically a two-person contest now, but they're, you know, at one point, I think we're a dozen people running, kind of like the first city in New Hampshire in 2018. Uh, so it's kind of a wild contest. So there are a couple of small contests, but uh, that's where we're at in Massachusetts. All right, let me sneak one more in on you since we've got just about a, a minute. I mean, do you see, as you look across this landscape, this, this dynamic of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party gaining momentum in New England states, in Massachusetts, uh, even in New Hampshire, based on all these races that you, you track so closely? Well, that's the really hard one. I mean, 2018, you clearly want to say yes, and they were on the upswing. But uh, I don't know where we're headed on this, to be honest with you, because, I mean, uh, the progressives in the, over the summer have been really cut out. I mean, Joe Biden the nominee, Kamala Harris, you know, the, the vice presidential pick. There wasn't really a lot of progressives uh, at the convention, and those that were there were falling in line because of Donald Trump. When Donald Trump, if, if Joe Biden's elected, I, I can totally see how it's not just a reaction where the midterms are good for Republicans, because they typically are the party out of power, but also for the ideological wing out of power. I can see how progressives would push back hard on a Biden uh, as president in that, particularly in that first term and particularly in places like. Wow, James Bendel, thank you very much for all the insights. We know you have to go. So we're going to take a rain check on a longer conversation that I know our listeners would really appreciate down the line. Thank you so much for joining us today on Off the Record. We'll all right, back. well, we're going to go and we're going to be back. We're going to get, uh, we're going to hear from uh, the folks who keep us on the air. And so this is Off the Record with Matt Robinson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM. And we will be back after a short break. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet on NHK. 
blogtalkradio.com where all, all, all of our shows are archived. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. You know, Paul, you do better with that tongue twister where all our shows are archived. Try that five times fast in your shower. Uh, I'm Matt Robeson. We are in the midst of uh, a really uh, fascinating discussion. We started off with a regional look at the politics unfolding across New England with James Pindell of the Boston Globe. And now we want to zoom out uh, because obviously in the broader country and the broader world, there is just a ton that is going on right now. We have been hearing uh, from regular listeners to our show uh, a, a bunch of questions, a bunch of themes um, over the course of the week. And so what we've done is uh, we, we've kind of gone into the, we kind of put them in the blender and try to tee up all the issues that we've, or at least a selection of the issues that we've been hearing about. Um, and so we've, we've arranged them into a little hit list here. And uh, Paul has drawn the straw to take us down the list, um, pose the questions to me, um, and uh, he, will, he will jump in whenever I say something that is uh, wrong or uh, incomplete or could use that uh, uh, Paul Hodes touch. Uh, Paul, sound good to you? Yeah, that's fine. So um, here's what I've been thinking about. Um, the, um, uh, the country is in a pretty, pretty interesting place, and I actually put a little post up on Facebook reflecting on the what I call the alternative reality of the uh, Republican convention, uh, alternative reality based on alternative facts uh, and uh, a truth-free, fact-free, reality-free zone um, uh, displayed on the Republican convention. Because if you zoom out and take a 30,000-foot view, a flyover of the nation at the moment, We've got a tragic, another tragic, horrible event in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a 17-year-old AR-15 toting a young, young man, a vigilante, shot and killed two people, wounded another horribly, folks who were protesting that a black man was shot seven times in the back by police while he was heading for his car where his three children sat and watched. There are wildfires burning in the West. There are hurricanes of immense historic proportions battering the South. COVID-19 is on on the rise with college kids coming back and ignoring all the social distancing rules as we uh, knew they would. Parents are worried about sending their kids to school. Businesses have shuttered. Main streets are boarded up. Uh, and so, you know, you, you got to think that uh, President Trump's 2016 inaugural speech where he talked about American carnage was was a campaign promise, not a uh, not not an observation. So there's we have some very deep, pervasive problems, not to mention the existential dilemma of climate change and how do you regain um, your your footing in the the world as as one of uh, as a as a leader of the world, if at all possible for the for America, and, we, and we're digesting all of this, and there we don't know what the new normal is. But look, if we think about this election that's coming up, the Trump and the Republicans are trying to use the tragedies 
uh, around police violence and the protests that have erupted, they're trying to use those tragedies to their advantage. It's as if Donald Trump arranged to send police to Portland in order to create the scenes that would then give him the leg to stand on to try to argue a law and order agenda. What's going on and is it going to work? Well, I mean, first of all, I absolutely agree with the way you characterized that. It just shocks the conscience to see a man shot in the back in front of his children, to see video of an armed 17-year-old um, who showed up from out of state to uh, start shooting people. Um, I his, have to admit, oh, go ahead. His mother drove him there. His mother drove him there. I have to admit that uh, even though you and I do a podcast and a radio show, so therefore at least part of what we do is, is talk, I struggle for words about this a little bit. Um, you know, and I, I, I've actually been sort of uh, impressed and inspired. Um, you know, we've seen the last 24 hours, we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, um, the protest of the NBA players who uh, opted not to play. And if you're an NBA fan, I've never heard so much passion and emotion and anger from people I respect and have admired my lifelong athletic heroes like Doc Rivers and Chris Webber that I've seen in the last 24 hours. And so, I mean, I'm sort of on a personal level somewhat staggered by this. But but your question was about, you know, what's going on and how Trump and the Republicans are sort of trying to manufacture and manipulate and use the situation um, to their uh, political advantage. Um, and yes, this is happening against the backdrop of the convention. You see Trump and the Republicans really double down on a theme that they have been literally shouting in all caps over Twitter, law and order, um, uh, opposition to looting and violence and what they characterize as sort of a meltdown of uh, civil order in society, um, which they have tried to reinforce um, at the uh, butt of a rifle. Um, and look, you know, you are seeing some reporting right now that Democrats are, are a little concerned that um, the situation in Kenosha, the way it's played out in the last few days, um, as understandable and, and, and as the anger and frustration clearly is, um, there is concern that that is going to uh, play into the narrative that the Republicans have been pushing. Kenosha County uh, is, is a county in a swing state that the president won by fewer than 250 votes in, 200, in 2016. That's 250 votes uh, in, in the whole county. Um, and there are Democrats on the ground who are telling the New York Times that um, they are concerned that their neighbors who are a little on the fence um, are going to swing in the president's direction. Of course, the other thing that's been going on is that earlier in the summer, there was really some remarkable polling um, in the wake of, of uh, the murder of George Floyd uh, and the eruption of Black Lives Matter protests around the country. There was remarkable uh, bipartisan even support and particularly support from white respondents in polling uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, before the protests, uh, support for Black Lives Matter was underwater. It was, there was more opposition than support by about four points. Um, after the protests by early June, support was uh, on top of opposition by about 10 points. But since that time, it's dropped. Um, and now it's about six points underwater again. 
Um, and so what you what you're beginning to see is some of the fading of that effect, that kind of cross racial support and 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 uh, 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 effect of um, everyone kind of coming together around this issue. And so that does leave things uh, a little bit uncertain as we now face another tragedy. And I, I, I do think that purely from a, an election and political standpoint, it is a little uncertain uh, which way things are going to go and whether the earlier um, across the board support for Black Lives Matter that we saw a couple months ago is going to be reinvigorated, is going to persist, or whether this downward slide is going to continue and whether that will play into Donald Trump's hands. So uh, the Republican convention, which I referenced in my first question to you, is uh, on its way to winding down. Oh, what a cavalcade we've had. We've had a, a stunning violation of the Hatch Act on by all parties concerned. We've had, and the Hatch Act, by the way, is a little known federal law that requires um, federal officials in their official capacities to stay out of politics and not use uh, federal resources uh, for politics because believe it or not folks, the theory is that when you're serving in the federal government, you're serving all the people. You're not serving just the people you want um, to reach to vote for you or support your effort. You're serving all the people. And so the Hatch Act is a very clear prohibition against using federal resources or your federal office for electioneering. I'm a, I am a, a proud member of the National Council on the Arts. I was appointed by President Obama. I have served since 2012. Uh, I, I suppose it burnishes my bipartisan credentials uh, to point out that that makes me an official in the Trump administration. So I have served as a United States congressman and now I've served as an official in the Trump administration. And every time we meet, Every single time we meet, General Counsel for the National Council on the Arts instructs us about the Hatch Act. They bring it up every meeting to remind us of the importance of not involving politics in our federal office. So meanwhile, Melania Trump in her Chinese army uniform has uh, given us a speech from the Rose Garden by the way, that's at the White House where she's removed all the trees, by the way. Mike Pompeo has given us a speech while he's in Jerusalem on state business from Jerusalem. That's a violation of the Hatch Act. The whole thing is a mess. Nobody seems to be making a deal out of it, but who cares? Meanwhile, we've had the Democratic Convention all sunshine and light. The Republicans are winding down their convention. Does any of it matter? Did anybody watch? Will it make any difference in the political hubbub that we're about to enter in these last approximately two months as we careen towards the election on November 3rd? Well, that's a good question. Do con th th this has been an ongoing question. It gets repeated every four years. Do conventions matter? It, sometimes people phrase it as, do they matter anymore? And now it's just sort of the more downbeat, do they matter at all? Um, you know, I think the short answer is, yeah, probably a little. 
um, but maybe not in the ways that that people traditionally used to think of them. I mean, obviously, they used to be contested events, and then they became made-for-TV events. And then, because they got so sanitized to be made-for-TV, they made for increasingly less interesting TV, which is why no one watches them anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, the viewership has been 17, 18 million. The Democrats did better on their night one. The Republicans did better on their night two. And I mean, look, for reference here, you're talking about like 17 million viewers. In 2016, there were about 32 million votes in the Democratic primaries, right? So even if you assume that all the people who are watching the Democratic convention are Democrats, only half of the people who vote in their primaries are even watching their own convention. So, you know, no, there's not a lot of direct impact. But, um, you know, two things. Um, one is that the viewership that actually does happen on TV does tend to skew older. So you did hear some belly aching on the Democratic side that maybe Democrats were pitching their message to moderate. They didn't give Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez enough time to speak. Um, you know, they, they weren't pushing enough of the progressive message. But I do think that that does fit the demographics of who is actually watching. Um, and also bear in mind that free media coverage, or as campaign operatives like to call it, earned media coverage, um, is most of the effect here. Um, and that, that tends to propagate far beyond the direct viewership of the event. So no, I, I don't think Democrats should be unhappy. Um, they've had a solid message, no mistakes. And that's important for them. They're, they're kind of, they're not exactly playing prevent defense, but they don't want to overreach here. They've got a lead. They've got the upper hand. Trump is the one who needs things to change from where we sit today. That's what James Pendel was just saying a few minutes ago. I don't think Donald Trump and the Republicans should be too unhappy with their convention either. Um, you know, the Republicans you know, off the record are saying that they, they really do feel pretty good about it. They're reinforcing the story they want to tell to the voters they want to reach. Um, they're giving white voters uh, some permission to feel like, okay, there's some diversity here, whether or not you really believe that. And um, they're hitting socialism. That's what they wanted to accomplish. So, no, I don't think they matter a ton. But um, both parties have more or less executed what they wanted to execute. So I know we're about to go to a break here. Um, I want to give you, Paul Hodes, the opportunity to do a classic radio tease and tease the next question. Would you like to tease the next uh, question? I, I'm always a big tease. You know, it's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And when we come back, we are going to talk about something weird going on in the world of politics. So don't go away, come back, and we'll talk about something wild and weird. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. It's Off the Record on WKXL. AM and FM streamed live over the internet. I'm Matt Robeson with Paul Hodes here on WKXL. And right before the break, Paul was beginning to tease a question about something weird going on. I am all ears. What weirdness is happening in politics and what can we do about it? Matt Robeson, there is something weird going on 
in terms of the strategery of Donald Trump and the Republicans. Now, I hesitate to use the word strategy in connection with Donald Trump because he's kind of an off the cuff kind of guy. He goes where the winds of his, uh, of his, the winds of his whims blow him or where the winds of his whims blow his hair. He seems to follow no script. He'll, he, you know, he's an off the cuff kind of guy and that may be true of his political strategy. But during August, Trump has gone off the air in critical swing states. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. And he's raised a huge amount of money. He spent a huge amount of money, but in Michigan, he's actually gone totally, completely, 100% totally dark. Now we know he's the dark lord, but he's gone dark lord on the air. He's, he's nowhere, nowhere in Michigan. And Michigan is huge. Michigan is of the swing states. Michigan may be the swingiest. It may be the most important, he's dark. What in heaven's name, what on earth is going on here? Is it having an impact and what's the strategy? All right, this is a really rich topic and we don't have time to hit all of the aspects of it here. Um, I may have to follow up and, uh, and write something about this, but let's, let's just give it a, a, a quick once over. So yes, you're right, um, Trump, has been, I think the, the latest figures I saw, uh, according to Politico, was that Trump has been outspent on TV by more than two to one during August. Um, and in, in just the last two weeks, uh, Biden is ahead of the president more than five to one on TV. Uh, in Wisconsin, now you mentioned that he's totally dark, meaning he's not on TV in Michigan. In Wisconsin, he's at an eight to one disadvantage against Biden. Uh, now, there, there are a few things going on. They did have a shakeup in the Trump campaign. So uh, uh, Brad Parscale is out. Bill Stepien is in. He did announce at the end of July that uh, they intended to take a, a strategic step back and a look and pause TV advertising. And they subsequently said that their view is that they can get away with this. There's so much saturation coverage on TV, on cable, during the conventions, and, and given everything going on politically right now anyway, that being dark with paid media uh, or being outspent with paid media just doesn't make as much of an impact, especially pre-Labor Day when voters are paying less attention. They have been up on the air in some states. Uh, they are planning a major post-Labor Day advertising blitz, especially in the states where there's going to be heavy early vote by mail. So they feel like they're just not taking that much of a hit uh, and they're trying to be strategic. But look, this does raise some really important questions. I, I mean, I'll just touch on them quickly. We'll, we'll return to them in, a, in another show. But, um, you know, I, we, we, we would think that if you were being vastly outcommunicated, that that would have some kind of an effect in polling. If you look at the polls in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, you are not seeing a, a bounce for Biden by outcommunicating there. Um, the last five in, in, in Pennsylvania have actually uh, trended slightly downward for, for Biden. Um, you know, the other thing that, that um, may be going on here is that Biden may be aiming more of his advertising at motivating Democrats rather than persuasion. 
Um, you know, there, there may be that uh, dilution effect. Um, you know, we also don't know how much is going on uh, on social media. We know that the Trump campaign is a big believer in the, in the power of Facebook um, and, and their spending has been heavy there all year and, and into this summer. So, um, you know, and that the final thing I would say is that it is possible that a lot of this cake is baked already. Uh, voters do tend to have pretty well ingrained opinions uh, of the candidates here. They know Trump pretty darn well. They know Biden pretty darn well. Uh, so it may be that the Trump campaign is, is trying to uh, be very selective and not waste money when voters are not paying as much attention and when so many of them have made up their mind already. So, okay, okay, so we're gonna not waste our money there on broadcast television after all, that's an obsolete medium. We're just gonna Facebook and tweet our way to victory. Uh, is that actually the Republican strategy? What is the Republican strategy? Um, is, is it, is it um, media savvy or media stupid? Is it, is it, and, 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 and what about the issues? Is law and order, is, is law and order the issue? Or, I, I mean, is what they're trying to do is, we'll talk about anything as long as it's a law and order and calling the Democrats socialists. And what we won't talk about is COVID-19. We'll tell you, we'll claim the economy is great, no matter what anybody says. Uh, look at all the great things we've done, and we'll just we'll just use the word strongly over and over again. I strongly believe the economy is great. If you take a look at what I've done, it's been strongly good, and I'm a strong guy because I'm the I'm the only guy. Uh, what's the strategy, and is there a winning path? Um, I mean, I, I I do I never put it past Democrats to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, and uh, speak to the the heads of voters when all 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 the voters care about is what's going on in the heart. Um, and you know, I mean, Trump. Tr the, if I think about it, the Republicans could have something on the law and order. We got we got Kenosha burning. We got Portland up in flames. Only the federales can save things. Our country. You, I said it was carnage. And look at what the Democrats have done. Those are democratic socialist protesters out in the streets. And oh, by the way, before all this, I built the best economy this country has ever seen. And I did that. I did it all by myself because the Obama didn't do anything. He was a failure. And I had to build the economy. And it was great, as you know. And we and COVID is under control and it's going to disappear by itself. What's their strategy? And can they win? Will they win? Who's going to win this, Matt? All right. So first of all, you're reminding me with all the references to how much Donald Trump likes to say the word strong and sometimes strongly strong, that the Republican Party has in many ways become the Festivus Party. It's all about feats of strength and airing of grievances. Um, and I think you are right that uh, the, the, the quote, I'm air quoting here, law and order strategy is part and parcel of this. I, look, I think that they're there is a winning path for them. Um, and it, I think it's, it, there's generally a three-part plan for what they're trying to accomplish here. Uh, the first part is to try and hold the line. 
on. And so our, our guest, James Pindell, referred earlier to uh, reach states, calling New Hampshire one of the reach states. It's a, it's a state that they'd really like to win. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of their upside scenario, but they're not, they're not banking on it. They know that there are some states that they cannot afford to lose. So, for example, one of the places that they're still spending is in Georgia. And you see that they are looking to shore up their absolute must-win red firewall states. Step two is, and they've come out and acknowledged this, the, the campaign manager, Bill Stepping, came out and said, look, you know, of the, of the Rust Belt trifecta, um, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, that gave Trump the election in 2016, they only need to win one out of three of those because he got 306 electoral votes. So to stay over 270 and, and win in 2020, he only needs one of three. And I think key to that, you know, step two is what you're seeing with this messaging around law and order and all the stuff coming out of the convention. It's trying to bring voters back to the fold who may have concerns, may have doubts about Trump, but ultimately, they want, to, they want to play on negative partisanship. They want to play on party loyalties or fear and hatred of the other party. So that's why they sound all these themes about Biden and socialism and cancel culture and all that stuff um, to try and raise the fear and anger quotient and drive those questioning voters back. And then finally, honestly, step three is I think that they are trying to uh, put themselves in a position to catch some breaks. That's one thing we know happened in 2016. We know that Trump was down and that the Comey letter and Russian interference played a pretty substantial part in him making up ground in the, in the final few days uh, and voters on the fence breaking hard for Trump. And so I, I think a lot of their strategy is to put up a sale and see if they can catch a little bit of a breeze at just the right time. They're just trying to put themselves in position so that they're close, they're close enough, they're bringing enough of their voters home um, so that if things break well their way, um, perhaps with external help or, or events, they will be in position to eke it out again. Okay, now I wanna to turn to something that really matters and that is the United States Post Office. Uh, in the last two weeks, Democrats have been consumed by the issues that are swirling around the post office. We know that 700 mail sorting machines have been removed. The postmaster general says they're not going back. We've seen video of post boxes being unbolted and removed from neighborhood corners all over the country. People inside the post office at the unions are telling us that the, the post office is being sabotaged. The guy who's running the show um, is a uh, private, uh, enterprise a guy who gave a huge amount of money to uh, Trump and doesn't even know how much it costs to mail a postcard. So the Democrats have held hearings. They have hauled the postmaster general across the carpet. I saw some great video of my former colleague, uh, Steve Lynch from uh, Massachusetts giving a diatribe about the post office and the fact that over 250 years, uh, no, the mail has always been delivered on time, no matter what, um, and, um, and, and just having at the postmaster general who basically ignored all those slings and arrows. But, but how bad is it? 
And in your writing, and, and by the way, folks, Matt writes for the alternate. He has a blog, a more perfect union forum, uh, com, must reads. Uh, in your writing, you said there's something even worse going on. What is it? All right, let me uh, let me see if I can get this in a quick 90 second nutshell, because I know we're running out of show pretty fast here. Um, yeah, I, look, I do think that Democrats should freak out about the post post service. I, I, I think that that's the right thing to do. Um, I think it's it's clearly a concern. No one is denying that uh, there has been some writing from former postmasters general that they they feel and, and these are people who have served in Democratic and Republican administrations, they feel that there is sufficient capacity um, and that there is not going to be a substantial slowdown around the election. They point out that the Postal Service handles far more mail um, at Christmas time. Um, look, for my money, the, the, the bigger concern, the thing that I'm really worried about, and clearly from a human impact standpoint, but also from an election standpoint, is that we are poised right atop a wave of evictions that are likely to happen. The wave is likely to crash in the coming weeks. We're beginning to see stories emerge from around the country about this. There are 28 million Americans who are estimated to be at risk of eviction. Who are they? They're largely young. They're largely minority. They're largely urban. Does that remind you of any particular political party in America? Um, they're, they're far and away Democratic constituencies, and I think I put in the article that if you were going to uh, aim a guided missile at uh, the Democrats alone, and you weren't allowed to do it based solely on race, then there's probably fewer more effective ways you could target that missile than to target it at renters who might be evicted. And that has deep consequences for those people's ability to vote, both in person and by mail. I detail in the article all of those consequences, and uh, they are they are substantial. So I commend the, the rest of the article to people, but that's what I would be worried about. You want to wrap? It's time I'll to wrap. wrap, but we're going to take a short break before we wrap this up. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. For your binge listening pleasure, we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson and I have had a great time. We had James Bindell of the Boston Globe. Matt, he really knows what's going on. And what's interesting is there were some things he just couldn't really answer. Yeah, there are a lot of imponderables going on right now. As uh, the president likes to say, we'll see what happens. So, folks, it's off the record. Matt Robeson, Paul Hodes here. We will be back next week with another great show. It's off the record on WKXLAM and FM. Thanks to the folks who keep the station on the air. Thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget, go to nhtalkradio.com and listen to some of our archived masterpieces. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.